Hey, this is Sam. So these audio instructions are starting to become a bit of a thing, aren't they? Anyway, I just wanted to let you know that today's episode is with Seth Andrews. He is a um, a massive figure in my life, someone that I have listened to and respected and engaged with for a long time in my journey out of religion and faith. And I thought it'd be amazing for you guys to hear a bit of his story and for me to ask him a few questions and just, yeah, really delve into who Seth Andrews is and why he does what he does. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion, and life. Hey, listen, I want to ask you to do two things. The first one is, would you go over to Apple Podcasts, search for When Belief Dies, and leave us a five-star rating and review? Every rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps to boost the visibility, and we want listeners like you to be able to find this show. The second thing is, would you consider supporting this show on Patreon? This show will always be an ad-free place, but your support on Patreon will enable us to do more and more over the coming years. So have a think, and if you can, support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Seth. Seth, it's great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. So, Seth, you run an amazing uh, podcast and YouTube channel um, called The Thinking Atheist, um, which I've listened to for many years and found extremely encouraging and helpful. And I think it's opened my eyes up to lots of things that I I would never have thought of before without coming across it. And I just wanted to to get you on to talk to our guests uh, here at When Belief Dies to kind of talk about your journey out of faith and kind of why why you do what you do, Seth, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. The Thinking Atheist is not a person. It's certainly not me. It's an idea because I come out of a faith culture. I was a devout evangelical, raised by devout evangelical parents. You know, we were Bible literalists, Christian school, Christian church, Christian music, Christian TV, Christian friends, Christian books, Christian everything. And uh, I was sort of expected to carry the family standard, you know, for my life. And I ended up in uh, Christian radio. I was a broadcaster for a lot of years. We played, you know, Amy Grant and uh, that kind of thing for the radio audience. And, uh, you know, I was in my 30s. I finally started to ask questions. You know, a lot of the lingering doubts that were in the back of my mind, I just got tired of hearing them and not acknowledging them and brushing them away or being told that you have to have more faith or just go with it or it's not supposed to make sense, uh, whatever. And uh, I saw a, uh, almost by chance, a Christopher Hitchens debate video that set me off on this path, you know, because the guy who was the atheist, the anti-theist, the guy I was supposed to disagree with was the guy in the debate that made the most sense. And I thought, well, that's weird. And uh, I decided to go in down the rabbit hole and find out wherever it leads. And at the end of that journey for me, I realized that it, you know, it was nothing I could accept any longer. It didn't wash. It didn't make any sense. I'd been living, living kind of an inherited belief instead of thinking for myself. And um, so it was late 2008. I 
finally said the word out loud, I am an atheist. And in an attempt to encourage others and kind of build community, I started the website. The podcast launched in 2010, and we've been going for over a decade. So it's pretty incredible. The um, yeah, the the amount you've done in the last 10 years. Thank you. How did you how did you find kind of um, I guess a lot of your kind of Christian listeners who have heard you every day and kind of come to your show for that sort of um, support and love and that sort of familiarity? Obviously, some of those people would have probably begun realizing you're doing other things now and started listening to that. And have you found this sort of being um, any contention or any great stories or negative stories through through doing that? Uh, contention for doing what specifically? Yeah, I guess um, potentially Christians who came to your show as it was the main place, beginning to maybe listen to your like non-Christian atheist work and um, maybe following along, but also maybe kind of trying to fight or, or convert you back. I expected that. When I first began, I thought, well, I'm still kind of a known quantity in my town. I mean, no, a little bit. And someone's going to Google search me. And before you know it, I'm going to get those emails, those sort of condescending, I'm so sorry that you left God kind of thing. You know, I was waiting. And I've had my share of apologists who've come after me and, you know, decided that they need to fix me. I'm kind of a science fair project to them, you know. Or just to say you're in rebellion against God and I stand against you. But I haven't really had anybody that was a Christian radio listener who came to me in an attempt to fix me. It's almost a conspicuous silence. I'm amazed at how often, you know, the incuriosity of many of these people, they don't say, well, Seth, you're a reasonable guy. What happened? Let's talk. Uh, they tend to, you know, avoid that. The few interactions I have had with people who were FM radio listeners of mine locally, they found me after they'd gone through their own journey. You know, they realized they didn't buy it anymore. And they said, oh, Seth, you know, I, I sort of had the same arc that you did. Belief, conviction. Wait a minute, I have some doubts. Maybe I don't believe in God, too. I'm an atheist. And so we've sort of become kindred spirits in that way. I know one guy, he's still in Christian radio. He's still a Christian broadcaster trying to find his way out. But he pinged me a few years ago and he's like, look, this is all a bunch of crap. I don't believe it anymore, but I got to find another gig. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know what else to do with my life, but just know, you know, solidarity, brother. So it's okay to doubt. You know, when I was a believer, doubt was a problem. They, they always told us to go ask questions, you know, test God, let him prove himself to you, blah, blah, blah. But that was a rigged game because if you came back with an answer other than Jesus, you were the problem. Uh, well, it can be that the answer wasn't Jesus. The problem is, is that you're weak or you're in rebellion or you don't have enough faith or you're being attacked by the evil one, you know? who's the disciple in the Bible that our parents never told us to be like. And that was Thomas, doubting Thomas, who said, show me the nail holes, Jesus, and show me some proof. Let's get some peer review going, you know? And uh, you know, I found myself at a point when I started to listen to those doubts. You know, doubt can be a great protective mechanism. You know, a lot of times doubt keeps us from being scammed or taken advantage of or hurt in some way. And uh, doubt is a, a tremendous tool, I think, for trying to weed out bad ideas. 
And I gave myself permission to listen to that doubt. And I have encountered a lot of doubters, even doubters within the faith, within the Christian community, inside the church, even inside Christian music, where they're having to have their own hard conversations about what they believe and why they believe it. Yeah, I think doubt's a very powerful thing. And it's having the ability to to utilize it in a way where you can honestly reflect on the findings that you come across and ask yourself, you know, what does this say to me? Does this mean that I need to step outside of this faith system that I've created? Or, or actually, is this going to enable me to stay within it? And I mean, just for reflecting on my story very briefly, I, I've definitely found that the things I came across um, meant that I had to step away from my faith um, kind of a story that I'd created for myself uh, but lots of people I know have kind of gone away and done their own research in their own way and actually found that their their doubt has been appeased by by the reading they've done whether it be kind of like a Lee Strobel book or like an N.T. Wright book on the New Testament or whatever um, but yeah I mean, just to encourage the listeners it's always it's always worth allowing your doubts to take you on that journey because then you honestly find out who you are I think um, you honestly find out like why you believe what you believe and how how that belief has affected you and will affect the rest of your life and um, I wanted to kind of pick your brains on this do you think that potentially some of the listeners didn't get back in touch with you because they're almost um i don't know viewed you as as a, a potential threat to their faith system like why why do you think that was sure well you know you would touch on a salient thing where i think ultimately at the end of the day my goal is not for people to think like me i think people should be able to take the journey on their own terms you know you are your own person and you get to go and, and have those discussions and you get to determine the boundaries. And, and so, you know, I, I'm glad you made that distinction because a lot of people are like, well, he just wants to preach atheism. Do I think that there is evidence for any gods anywhere? I, I haven't seen any, I'm not convinced. But at the end of the day, I just want people to feel like they can live an authentic life and be themselves. Um, I do find or get the vibe that some people see me as radioactive. <laughs> and I think it speaks to a deep-seated insecurity about their own position sometimes. Uh, first of all, if you can't be in the room or have a conversation or befriend somebody who disagrees with you, even on a critical question, the God question, what does that say about you? Uh, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that God can't win the day? Uh, that's, that doesn't fit with your faith. Are you afraid that God's claims can't stand up to scrutiny? Well, that doesn't you know, fit your religious narrative or your scriptures. Are you afraid you're going to be infected with atheism? Well, that doesn't wash in this is the context of divine protection if God is so much greater than the devil. Uh, or maybe if you're being more honest with yourself, what are the chances that you need affirmation by surrounding yourself with people who look like you and think like you and sound like you? And I find that's often the case. And so if you become the person who is not looking and sounding and acting like them, but you are a contradiction or you, you contradict them, rather, I think some people flip out. You know, it's uncomfortable for them. And I think that's just weird. You know, I, you know, Jesus hung out with the lepers and the prostitutes and whatever, you know, I mean, you can probably have dinner with an atheist and I'm not going to infect you with atheism, but there is, I think, uh, a culture of people who they fear what they don't understand. They don't know if they even know any atheists. They have been trained to be terrified 
of these satanic others who have come to infect their lives, their nations, come after their children. They've infected all the universities. They want to burn down your churches. They hate Christmas. You know, they've created this caricature, this othering of the atheists to the point where they just lose their minds. And we're just people, people like everybody else. You know, we get up in the morning, we go to bed at night. We, we love our families. We love to laugh. We, you know, we're nervous about the state of the world and, you know, we, we genuinely do want goodness to prevail. I think we just disagree on how that is to come about. And as an atheist slash humanist, I've come to the point where I think, well, you know, I, I don't see a God acting and interacting in the world if good's going to happen. If our solutions are going to come, it's going to have to be us because there's no evidence that manna will fall from heaven. I try to communicate that. I've had some success with people who get weird and wacky about atheists and they kind of want to run the other direction. You can see them squirming. And I just, you know, I kind of wink at them and say, hey, it's all right. You know, I'm good. <laughs> I'm not I'm a good guy. I'm not going to infect you. And if your God really is worth his salt, he ain't worried about me anyway. So everybody relax. If, if God is real, he's big enough to, um, to take care of, of us and them for sure. Um, yeah, I was, I was going to ask you as well. It's something that I've been trying to work through for quite a while and I think I've come to a point on it, but it'd be really interesting to hear your, your thoughts at least. It's this idea that, um, we aren't actually in control of what does and does not convince us to be true. So, um, when I was leaving Christianity, I had this absolute desire for it to be completely true. Like I, I wanted to believe it. I read and, and, like deliberately listen to things that would try and help me get back into that frame of mind but actually um i realized that before that potentially even subconsciously i'd begun a journey um, and got to a point where I, I actually didn't believe it anymore and no matter what i did i couldn't claw back that belief um i don't know have you kind of experienced that with the people you talk to or, or even yourself seth yeah i i think you speak to a contradiction within scripture itself first of all you know where people are commanded to believe right well how can someone be told to believe. Like, Seth, I would like you to, to believe that gravity is bogus. <laughs> well, I mean, I can profess that gravity is bogus, gravity doesn't exist, but my belief doesn't change. I, I believe slash know that gravity is a thing. You know, I want you to believe that there is, uh, you know, a, a giant cosmic octopus that is, uh, you know, holding the universe together with its many tentacles. Well, I mean, I can profess the belief in that, but I, I, if I'm honest with myself, the belief mechanism is operating sort of automatically, belief or disbelief. And uh, I, I think that's one of the problems with things like Pascal's wager, which is based on Blaise Pascal, who once said that, uh, you know, hey, I'd rather believe in God and be wrong, because even if I am wrong, I haven't wasted my life, and if I'm right, I avoided hell. And there are a few things, actually a lot of things wrong with Pascal's wager, but one of them, first of all, is the, uh, the false claim that a life dedicated to a lie would not be a wasted life. I genuinely think it would be. And also this idea that if you decided to believe, you're just professing belief, but the belief itself is happening sort of on its own. 
inside your skull. So, I mean, I'm sorry, I can't choose to say, oh, yes, there is a God. I can maybe play act. I can try to convince myself. I can speak the words. I can talk the talk. And, uh, you know, on top of all that is the idea that maybe we're fooling God, that God couldn't tell the difference. We're just, we just have fire insurance. So we're going to profess belief because, you know, you don't want to be wrong. <laughs> I'm interested in the mechanisms of how belief happens. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. I don't choose what I believe. I can only choose really what I uh, say out loud, what I profess that I believe. Yeah, it's really powerful. I think it's um yeah, and it's 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 it definitely feeds into this idea that people think that once you become an once you become an atheist or a non-believer or whatever label you want to label someone with, um, you, you become this almost like self-centered, negative, narcissistic person. I know a lot of people think that you know an atheist is someone who's rejected God, therefore they reject morality and choice and all these sorts of things. And um, I, I just find it really interesting when you kind of go go away and actually look at a lot of what the atheists are doing out there. And so, you know, a great example is someone like um, Bart Ehrman, who would call himself an, an, an agnostic atheist. Um, he's got this amazing blog that I subscribe to and read every, everything that he posts and his guests. And, you know, all the money for that is, is, is going to the poor, is going to those in need. And actually, there's some amazing atheists out there who are doing some great stuff. And you, and you, were, you, you kind of touched on this briefly, Seth, and you mentioned that you were kind of like, like a, a humanist atheist. How does, your, um, how does your humanism kind of feed into your life then? Well, it's funny. When I came out of my religious belief, I suddenly came to this point where I thought, well, how much of what I think about the world was informed by that, right? I mean, I'm going to have to go through all of the different elements of my value system and find out, well, how much of it was sort of infected with superstition. And I wrote about this in my recent book called Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian, but uh, all right, how do I feel about the death penalty? Uh, well, okay, hang on just a second. Now that I'm not an eye for an eye guy, you know, uh, how do I feel about that? How do I feel about female reproductive choice? Now that I don't believe that a tiny soul is magically created at the moment of conception and there's like a little magic little baby. Um, and I understand the misogyny and sexual control of females rampant throughout the Bible, you know. How do I feel about right to die issues, death with dignity, people having the right to pull the plug on their own lives? You know, I used to think that was God's decision alone. Well, wait a minute. If I don't believe that, do I, am I ready then to grant people the autonomy to make their own life and death decisions? And of course, that answer was yes. How do I feel about the legalization of recreational drugs? How do I feel about government and social programs? How do I feel about nationalized health care? How do I feel about this and that, you know? And um, I just found myself, you know, having to do a course correction on so many things. And one of those things was this realization that Christianity has declared pretty successfully that good and kind and compassion and charitable things are of God or of the church. And, you know, I came to the realization that, wait a minute, you know, I, I don't, Christopher Hitchens himself once asked the question, name a right and moral action that a believer could do that a non-believer couldn't do. And I came to the realization that, you know, we can skip all the superstitious window dressing. It's human beings doing the best stuff anyway. And, uh, my lack of my rejection of superstition then began to inform well, what am I 
really about? I mean, atheism talks about what I disbelieve. I don't buy a God. I'm not convinced in that. But proactively, what is my value? Uh, what are my value systems? You know, and it became well, you know, God's not going to feed the hungry, so let's let's go feed the hungry. You know, God isn't going to give us the cure for cancer. Let's support the scientists who are developing cures for cancer or seeking cures for cancer. God's not stopping COVID. You know, let's promote mask wearing and basic public safety measures and support the people who are behind the scenes who are trying to shore things up and protect human life. And, you know, I, I just, plus some of it, forgive the long answer, but, but you know, talking about atheism, you can only say over the course of 10 years, you can only say there's no evidence for any gods anywhere so many times. There's only so many times you can go through the Bible or the Quran. There's only so many times you can talk about cults and you can get into the different apologist arguments and counter-apologetics. Sometimes I just want to talk about other things. I want to talk about how do we change the world? The world's got some problems. We as human beings live in the world. How do we join together? How do we fix it? And uh, so proactively trying to be a force for positive change, that has been a focus of mine more and more over the past several years. Yeah, it's a really powerful thing. I think it's that, I, was, I, was, I chatted to Matt Dillahunty a little while ago and he was talking about this idea of um, his strongest design now seems to be around um, kind of climate change and how, how, how we need to address these sorts of things and, and actually living within a an atheistic framework doesn't mean that you don't care about these things it means actually that you you realize the answers are within you and the people around you and you have the almost um innate desire or right to be able to go away and look at it and go okay what can i do to make my difference but also what can i do in my community to begin to kind of start people thinking about other ways of living that would be less detrimental to the environment or you know pick any pick any social kind of um activity that that is 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 of, of importance to you it's been interesting too uh, i've seen some atheists i mean an atheist isn't necessarily a humanist like i've met some atheists who were just like they're just awful people <laughs> you know what I'm i mean i've 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 met beautiful wonderful religious people hell i'm married to a god believer you know and she's the best person i know and I've met terrible atheists who don't care. They don't, they're selfish and awful and toxic. And, you know, they, so um, atheism is really only about one thing. I do not believe in any God anywhere. I am an atheist, but it doesn't necessarily require anything else. And so that's why I like to say humanist more and more uh, because I feel like, all right, fine. If I'm, if I'm going to live in this world, and am I ready and willing to accept sort of the mantle of societal responsibility, the social contract to try to better the world I live in for myself and everybody else? And uh, so I've, I've then that's been one of the most fulfilling parts of my activism, for sure. And it's, I think, for 
for, for me, there's this idea that, um, you know, when you kind of step outside of uh, religion, at least the religion that I was in, it was only then that I began to look at the world around me and look at, you know, the solar system and evolution a little bit more and look at these other amazing things that have happened um, and that we can we can witness today and, um, you know, just get absolutely bowled over by the cosmos and the galaxies and how light years work and how the sun works. And, you know, these things have only ever driven a desire to know more and experience more and, and enjoy more. Um, well, and if I can forgive the interruption, but uh, you had mentioned this idea that atheists are arrogant. Uh, you'll find some arrogant, you know, atheists. Yeah, sure. You'll find arrogant people. But it's funny because now I look at it and I think it's truly the religious, the fundamentalist religious position that's one that is more arrogant, right? I, I'm the guy who has come to the realization that the universe doesn't care if I exist, you know? universe been going on for billions of years it'll continue on long after i'm gone and forgotten i you know when i was a believer i thought that god had created hundreds of billions of galaxies so that this little rock could be the center of his attention and i would be so important that he would adopt me and send me on a divine mission with eternal reward and mansions and crowns and live together forever i mean that's really kind of an arrogant position you know you're essentially saying in that way, I'm kind of the center of all things. And when you're an atheist, you're like, well, actually the universe doesn't care. My life is finite. When I'm dead, I'm dead. And that's kind of it. I think that gives you a perspective that is a lot more humble. You have a lot more cosmic humility in that way. And uh, you know, another weird ancillary thing that came when I left religion is I lost my fear of death. Isn't that weird? Like when I thought there was a heaven, we're going to go in this happy, happy, joy, joy place and sing songs and the family dog will be there and, you know, it's going to be amazing. And, I, you know, I was always afraid of dying. And uh, now, I mean, I'm not looking forward to it, but I, I don't think about it. I'm not scared of death. It doesn't bother me that there's not another life. Would I like to continue on in some way? Yeah, I'd be kind of cool. Uh, but I'm... Uh, Unliberated, and I feel like every moment on this life is now more precious. It's more critical because if there is no tomorrow, then we got to make every moment here count. And in that way, it's added a sense of urgency to my time here on planet Earth. I I agree. I've um I've I found that things things that I never even thought about before, like for instance, um probably like if you, so you, it's definitely non-spiritual, but something like mindfulness meditation, where you're um, just able to kind of enjoy the moment that you're in right now and witness thoughts and feelings arise and things like that. I mean, do you do you kind of have anything that could potentially be labeled as spiritual, but it's obviously non-spiritual that you still kind of do in your life to kind of get that not fix maybe, but at least that sort of connection? You know, I I don't do any like religious exercises. Um, but I have become impressed by mindfulness meditation. Sam Harris has talked a lot about this. And in fact, he likes the word spiritual in that way to describe not a spiritual membrane, but you know, the, the amazing events, moments, experiences in our lives that may not be served by language like language doesn't really do them justice and we say it's kind of a spiritual experience and i get that i'm not a fan of using the word in that way i mean you can you know knock yourself out if it works for you but i i do understand that there are there are aspects to religious exercises 
that are fulfilling, which is why they are attractive. Dr. Andy Thompson is a psychiatrist and author, and he has done some work on studies where they talk about um, you know, singing communal music like you would in church. People come together and they lock arms and they sing songs together. There's actually uh, body chemistry. Your, your chemistry changes. Uh, you're, you get a rush. You feel better. You are calmed. You feel inspired. There's a euphoria that happens. Now, you could get that elsewhere without having to spin the stories of ancient holy books, I think. You could probably get that by you know, singing another song somewhere in another context and still having the human connection, but it's understandable. Uh, prayer, what does prayer entail? Well, you've got time, people attending to you, you have closeness, people touch you, you know, they put their hands on you, their arms around you, you are hugged, you, are, you have time, you have the words of affirmation and compassion. And in that context, these things are understandable. I just submit that we don't have to lie to ourselves or accept unsubstantiated claims or debunked claims to have all of this, because I think the best parts of it are really human. If there is, and I, and I don't know that I accept um, anyone's claim, and you didn't make it, but I've heard it claimed that like meditation has got to be a spiritual thing. I mean, meditation is really about uh, making the choice to create an environment and participate in exercises where you are kind of clearing the cobwebs out of your own skull and de-stressing and, you know, breathing it out and balancing yourself and, you know, no gods required. This is you essentially kind of taking charge of your own mindsets. And I've become a fan. I don't do a lot of it, but I'm a fan of mindfulness meditation without any context of spirits. Yeah, I found it to be probably the most powerful thing since leaving Christianity. I, I, I think for me, the big thing about it is um, it's the realization that so many or all the thoughts and feelings I have arise from a place where I have absolutely no control for them to but arise from like there's nothing I can do to stop them they just come into my into my mind and I can have a I can have the conscious choice to stop focusing on them and that's kind of what that mindfulness is about is to stop focusing on the overwhelming thoughts and feelings and to begin to experience consciousness as as it is but it's, it's it really isn't as spiritual as you, you know, mentioned thing and I, I kind of use the sam harris spiritual uh, tag when i talk about it because it's that um it is spiritual in regards to you realize something about yourself your consciousness which you, you, know, you could call your spirit if you want but it really is just this thing we aren't really sure where it comes from but it's there and it's within us and it's, it's really bizarre but yeah it's it, i think it's, you don't it's, forget you don't realize how hard it is to clear your own mind oh, it's mental yeah <laughs> right I mean, you're supposed to kind of blank your mind and, and just just stop, just stop and clear your head and just be. And, you know, 40 seconds later, you know, I'm thinking about, oh, well, I've got this in my <laughs> inbox and I've got to finish this edit and we're going to take it. Oh, wait a minute. I've got to go to the grocery store and hang on the dogs. And, and you have to stop and say, Shh, stop, stop. You will yourself back into that space. And I think you become aware of how distracted we all are right? It's sensory overload 24-7. I don't think we're wired for that. I think, you know, no wonder we're always mentally and physically exhausted. And uh, it's a, I think it's a great exercise. It's like, you know, working out a muscle. I think you get a little better at sort of centering yourself every time you do it, but you don't realize how hard it is until you try to lock all that stuff out of your mind and just be, try it. 
everybody just try it sometime. And then within about 60 seconds, you will realize your mind took a little bunny trail and you have to go and reel that back in and start again. Yeah, I do a thing with my two boys. I've got a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and um, you know when they're kind of really hyperactive, I get them basically to sit on the floor, and we all just sit there together, close our eyes, sitting on our bums, and we just kind of we just sit for sixty seconds. And um, yeah, it's, it's it's amazing watching them and even myself struggle just to sit still for a minute. Like yeah. it's so it's so hard. You don't even realize it, but you're moving your back, you're stretching, you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um, yeah, we're definitely wired to go, go, go. But I don't think within this environment, like we weren't obviously designed to be where we are now. We just are where we are now. And it's that weird realization that a lot of the quirks and randomness of the society we live in are are things that haven't been planned in, but are arising from this bizarre collision of atoms that you see in front of you. It's just a bizarre thing to reflect upon. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So... I was going to kind of chat to you a little bit, if it's okay with you, about kind of um, your your wife and, and her Christianity, not necessarily going into her, but kind of more about how how you guys um, live life together with that sort of um, relationship. I know a lot of people listening to this are either kind of married to a partner who's a believer or um, a partner, maybe if they might be a Christian, a partner might have left the faith. Um, and it's just really helpful for sometimes people to hear kind of how people journey that stuff together. So if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing on how you kind of go about that, that'd be really interesting, Seth. Well, I mean, I, and we've had an honest, converse, honest conversation. I mean, Natalie is a, a believer in God, but really in almost a deistic sense. Uh, you know, she's not really all that interested in the Bible and various holy books and dogmas. And, you know, she's a humanist, right? You know, she, she and I line up in terms of values. I think she just holds to the larger idea that, you know, there is something out there. But she doesn't really take it very personally. And we don't attend church. She doesn't go to church without me. You know, it's not, it's not really part of the DNA of her life. And, and I think, you know, if she was a fundamentalist and she was like, where's my husband on Sunday mornings? Why am I in the church seat by myself? And, and if we had to, you know, have those conversations, it probably wouldn't work. But you know, we really line up. We line up in terms of uh, what we value in life, which is, you know, each other. We love each other. She's a fantastic human being and uh, uh, just the most beautiful person in the world. And and um, and that's another reason I, I tend to get a little frustrated with some atheists. I don't see it quite as much, but it used to be they're just hurling invectives at at God believers, you know, they're stupid and they're brain dead and they're idiots and they're terrible people and they're all, you know, whatever. And, and I'm just like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I wasn't a terrible person when I was a God believer and I was as devout as they come. I, I was a good guy. I wasn't stupid. My IQ didn't change when I was a believer as compared to when I, I wasn't a believer. Uh, you know, I think it, it has been a healthy exercise for us in seeing past the labels into the person behind the labels. Natalie admitted to me that, you know, long before we'd met, if someone had said, hey, would you like to go out on a date with an atheist? She would have run the other direction. But, you know, she was on part of this journey with me and really saw the humanity. And, you know, she's been on the road with me. And she's met atheist activists across the country, and she's seen the people who are making up the audience, the podcast audience, and sees beautiful people. You know, they're they're just people, 
And uh, so we've uh, we've done a you know we have our moments. I mean, where we shake each other, like we just want to reach over and go, "Why don't you see my position? Why don't you understand what I'm trying to say?" You know, we we've had those days when there's a little bit of a language barrier, but they're they're rare. They're we have so much more in common than we ever had really in disagreement. And so while you know we can sit around and philosophically debate the God question. Uh, for us, we've decided to focus on the other better things, and that's worked for us. That's beautiful. It's, it's such an important part of life, and this is this is the thing that I come back to time and time again is. Um, I, I really struggle with with people. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's fine they do it, but I struggle with the concept of of people um, sitting within sort of like echo chambers who are just wanting to have their own opinion reinforced and um, aren't aren't able to actually see, as you mentioned there, the person behind the label or the facade, or whatever it is that you think that they're putting up. Because a lot of the time, a lot of the Christians that I know, I've got some of my best friends are Christians still. I've got you know, my wife's a Christian, my parents are Christian. Like there's loads of Christians in my life, um, and when you actually realise that you could take away that Christianity and they'd still be um, the same loving person dedicated to the same humanistic values who care about very similar things to you, if not the same things. And actually a lot of the things that you have issues on um, aren't necessarily things about doctrine, but they're things like, you know, should I send my child to this school or this school? Or, you know, can we can we do something to stop our elders getting bullied or whatever it is? It's that sort of like, you, you begin just journeying life together and realizing there's, there's, there's more to people. But I wondered if I can kind of get, just get your thoughts, Seth, on, on, on the idea of like um, echo chambers and how you kind of um, come across people who are almost saturated with their own worldviews. Well, this is more and more of a problem as we see, you know, these social media algorithms kicking in and we're all tribal. I think most of us are tribal to a degree, right? We like our in-groups and, um, and we like to hang out with people who share our interests and values and validate us. I mean, that's natural. I get that. Um, and it's been a weird time where I have had to sort of define what it means to be in an environment where you have the cross-pollination of ideas. It's like if we could talk about, I don't know, let's talk about healthcare, right? I should be able to, to hear a dissenting opinion if I believe we should have nationalized healthcare, that healthcare is a right. Like, I think it's stupid that, and I'm a gun owner, I have a firearm, but, you know, I think it's stupid that in the United States, everybody's screaming that, that the Second Amendment gun ownership is our human God-given right, but healthcare for our sick people is not, right? Well, all right, I should be able to sit down and have a conversation with a person who has a, an opposing point of view, and we should be able to hash that out instead of me simply being surrounded by people who totally agree with me. Mm. I think, you know, the best ideas do need to win the day. And I've tried to do a little bit of a better job of engaging people and browsing sites that are not necessarily exactly tailored to my specific point of view. But I also have made the decision in my life, especially after four years of Donald Trump, <laughs> that and while everybody's talking about unity, I don't want to have unity with terrible people. <laughs> you know? uh, I don't need. I don't need to sit down across the table from a white supremacist 
because their ideas are valid and we have to engage because blah, blah. blah. I mean, sometimes some of this stuff is sort of settled law morally, and I don't, I don't want any part of it. And, uh, I, you know, there's no perfect answer, but I think we should be able to disagree and engage people who have a different point of view on a lot of the philosophical questions, infrastructure questions, uh, what is genuinely beneficial or not for society. But when it comes to the genuinely hateful ideas, I have done a pretty concerted job of, uh, weeding that stuff out of my life i've just run out of gas i just ran out of patience for it and, and maybe that will change but uh you know i i um you know i don't know it's it's a hard balance to 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 draw you know i i i think we have to remember it helps to remember that we buy design's not the word we have evolved to be tribal and we have to I think try to be self-aware about whether or not our tribes are being beneficial in the moment or whether they have become an excuse for us simply to other good people who have a disagreement on an important idea. And if we simply have a disagreement with a good person, then I think prudence dictates, dictates that we have to engage. We have to step past our wall. We have to open the door. We have to find a, a neutral table and let's hash it out and let's see each other as three-dimensional flesh and blood human beings. And that's not that's something that's only going to happen if we make a concentrated effort to do it. Because the way social media and the way our culture is designed, it's actually designed to further and further drive us into our pods. So we're going to have to it's going to have to be an action on our part that overcomes it. Yeah, and and it, that, that takes energy, it takes investment, it takes patience, and those things aren't free. Like they 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 cost you. And you know, just going back to what, what we were saying before, is the idea that our time is finite. Like we are not here forever, and uh, we have the ability to do as much as we can do. And um, and actually, you need to be the best you can be to make the most important difference that you could make and it's about finding that balance and striking it and, and filling yourself up with with that that's going to get you through your family and your friends and your passions and your hobbies and all those sorts of things and then actually picking something that will excite you to be engaged with and then talking to someone with a different viewpoint and going well why do you believe this and it just it doesn't match up to what i've experienced which is basically why i do this podcast it's a it's hearing both sides and actually going honestly why, why though that doesn't make any sense like can you help me understand what it is specifically about religion that has got you in there and and you really believe it's true um but yeah there are so many so many areas that once you step outside of religion you just realize politics finance economics yeah, all this stuff is, is huge and it's scary and it's a it's a world that you don't necessarily really pay attention to when you're just focusing on god yeah it's true i agree totally so I wanted to kind of um, touch on it briefly. I'm aware that, you know, you probably talk about this stuff all the time, but you do talk about this stuff all the time. But um, how do you how do you view the Bible now today? When, when someone says, do you mean this passage for you or I'm praying for you or I'm um, or you know, someone says, you know, would you read this this book of the Bible with me? Like, how, how, how do you view it? Is it still on your shelf? Is it still hold a place of importance? Like, how do you yeah, how do you go through that? Well, <sighs> yeah, I've had so many discussions about the Bible. I'm not even sure how I would answer it in the moment. It's, it used to be the good book, all caps. And um, <laughs> now I see it as a book that can be whatever you want it to be. If you want it to be a love book, oh, no problem. I can find you some love verses in there. You want it to be a hate book? Okay. 
I can find those verses. You want it to be a turn the other cheek book? Fantastic. You want it to be a wipe out the the neighboring tribe in the name of God and put all the, you know, the unborn babies to the sword? Boy, I, I can find that. You want redemption? Great. You want global drowning because God's mad? I can do that. I mean, the Bible is it can be whatever you want it to be, you know. It's such a schizophrenic book. My challenge with the Bible is and we just saw this, you know, we see it in politics, we see it with our next-door neighbors in the United States. Bible waving has become almost like a spectator sport. The Bible's a prop. And yet, Bible illiteracy is epidemic in this country. So you're surrounded by a statistical majority of Americans who believe the Bible or say they do, and they don't know what's in it. They have no idea. Who wrote any one of the 66 books of the Bible? Nobody knows. Who wrote the book of Genesis, the foundational book of the foundational book of an entire religion for two billion human beings? Nobody knows. And they're okay with this. They don't stop and, well, where did this come from? Who actually put pen to paper and talked about the dirt man and the rib woman and the talking animals and the enchanted garden, and, you know, all of that stuff. And uh, I, I find the Bible is, it's frustrating. It's, it's interesting from a literary point of view, but to see it so often weaponized by people who either don't know what's in it or they cherry pick it, or they misrepresent it, or excuse its worst parts. I just think, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of done with the Bible. We can talk about it. I engage people on scriptures all the time, and I find that uh, in almost every case, it is the atheist who knows more about what's in the Christian Bible than the Christian does. A great exercise that I have is I'll throw out some examples in front of uh, a few friends. And I'll say, you know, I've been interested in the Abrahamic faiths and I've been getting into Islam. And, you know, there's this uh, horrible test in the Quran where a woman who is suspected of getting pregnant by a man who's not her husband, they bring her in front of this tribunal of men and uh, they take the woman and they make her drink poison. And if she miscarries the baby, it means she's a harlot. And that's just barbaric. And they're like, oh, that's just terrible. Islam is a barbaric and horrible religion. It's just sad that we have to deal with this nonsense in the 20th century. We should evolve it or not evolve, but we should grow out of this. You, you can hear the, the Christian, the devout Christians. And of course, then I pull the rug out from underneath them. And I say, well, actually, I've been a little bit disingenuous. The bitter water story is not out of the Quran. I uh, brought that to you from the Christian Old Testament. And then you can hear a pin drop. And then they're like, well, that, no, that's, that's, no, that's not in there. And then, of course, I'm prepared and pull up chapter and verse and I read it to them in the hopes that I'm planting a seed that, you know, there's some stuff in here you probably need to be aware of. And also notice what your reaction was when you thought it was somebody else's religion as opposed to yours. How did you change the rules? Why be deferent to one and, condemning of the other. What's happening in your psyche? And I'm hoping that the seeds that that exercise plants might result in further doubts and the doubt results in further exploration. And maybe that exploration leads them out of uh, sort of this, um, you know, fundamentalist or at least blindly allegiant Christianity. 
You know, we can talk about the Bible. At the end of the day, though, it remains a wildly contradictory, often terribly immoral and petty book that nobody really needs to live their best life. We can examine it like you would examine something under the microscope, but it's certainly not a text that we should call good or something we should live by. I think someone said, I, I forget who, but you know, like theology wouldn't be a thing if the Bible made sense. Um, if we, we wouldn't need all why, these. Why would you need the apologist? Like, why would God need human apologists to come and explain what God meant in the first place? Or here's another great one. Shannon Q, uh, an activist friend of mine, had this one. She's like, she loves it when apologists say, well, to understand the Bible, you need to actually read this other book. So what that's saying is that the Bible itself is not explanatory. It doesn't have enough explanatory power. You have to go to a human-made book, which was written when? Okay, 15 years ago. That means that the people who were born or who lived before the year 2006, they didn't have the necessary explanations to understand the Bible because apologist X hadn't written this book yet. You know, you, then the apologists disagree with each other. Ask them about the basics. Uh, is it a literal creation or is it metaphor? Do you baptize by immersion or oil or water? Do you baptize at the age of accountability or when you're born? Is hell legit? Is it fire? Is it temporary? Is it permanent? Do you get the Holy Spirit when you accept Jesus? Or do you have to say a separate prayer? What's heaven look like? You know, I mean, you just put all of these apologists in a room and give them just a few of the basic questions about Christianity, and it's Thunderdome. No, just drive each other. <laughs> you know, just sit back and watch the fireworks. The God who was not the author of confusion has certainly birthed a confusing religion for generations. Yeah, it's very true. I was going to kind of get your take on this. What What are your thoughts on people like Jordan P. Peterson? Do you have any kind of gut reaction? Or I'm not a fan of Jordan Peterson. Um, you know, when he was talking about, I think he referenced the metaphysical substrate once. You know, he's one of those guys where he's got a big fan base. I found him hugely unimpressive myself. And um, so, you know, he... he, he he seems to have injected a little Deepak Chopra into some of his philosophical conversations that I don't track with, you know. Uh, I know he has a strong fan base out there, but uh, yeah, I'm not among them. It's been interesting seeing his his take on Genesis, especially, and work through how people, um, yeah, read that and the kind of the, 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 the truth, in, in quotation marks, that is within Genesis, because, yeah. And, you know, I'm... How do you, you can go through the book and find truths like small t, you can find things that, well, I, I think that's legitimate or, you know, this makes even moral sense. Uh, there are, I mean, there are good things in the Bible, but they existed long before the Bible. You know, uh, all of the best stories or the best moral lessons, you think they didn't exist back when the Sumerians were around, you know? <laughs> I mean, this idea that this was sort of an original work and no one else knew that you shouldn't lie, cheat, or steal, or hurt people, or whatever, before the Bible came along, you know, I just, I don't buy it. I think, uh, you know, this is part of a, a larger 
moral code, an ethical code that is part of how we have evolved as a cooperative species. So. That's good. It's really good. And um, something I, I, I like to ask guests when I remember to ask them is, is this idea that obviously you are at a point now in your life and you're going to have hopefully lots of years ahead of you. Um, we can all hope for that uh, for ourselves as well. And it's this idea that actually if you could write a letter today to send back to yourself, um, you know, when you were firmly rooted within some, some sort of kind of like evangelical faith, um, what, what would you say to yourself? Like if it was a tweet or a short letter, like what would be the thing that you'd want to make yourself, yeah, go through? I'd like to, I honestly, I'd like to crack through my own skull and because I don't know if the younger Seth would have been listening. You know, it's funny when you think you have the answer with a capital A and you have that sort of cockiness, that, that blind confidence that, well, lucky me, out of all these thousands of religions, I happen to be fortunate enough to be born into the right one where my family is correct and everybody else is deceived. Good for me, you know, and I feel validated and and I've got an answer to all the world's problems. And there's a phenomenon about getting older where the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> As I got older, I realized, well, my, my cockiness was not really warranted. I, I don't know much about anything, you know. Um, I think if I could tell anything to my younger self, I think it would be distrust authority. Religions, fundamentalist religions, are authoritarian by design. We are trained to respond. Right? There is an authority over you. God ordains this, and God has placed his authority figures in your life. You listen to them. They are the shepherds, you are the sheep, kind of thing. And uh, we've seen this uh, recently with American politics. Donald Trump was deemed an authority appointed by God. And so people begin to turn off their logical and moral reasoning centers to allegiantly follow someone they consider to be placed as an authority over them. And, you know, they did some crazy stuff. Many of his more devout, uh, fervent, zealot followers, you know, we see cult leaders. They are straight up authoritarians. Uh, they, they say, toe the line, do it my way, abide by these rules, distrust everybody else, certainly don't do your own thinking. You know, I, I wasn't trained to do my own thinking. I was told, here's what you think. Here's what is true. They, Christian school, right? I came home after a third grade class, homeroom was talking about evolution. I went home and told my devout evangelical mother, well, I learned the most amazing thing about Neanderthal man today. And she just flipped out, not because she was interested to find out what I had learned and she was challenged and wanted to have a discussion about what might be true. She flipped out because this was not what I think. Her son is not going to accept evolution. And she immediately plucked me right out of that little public school and threw me into a private Christian school where her worldview would be pounded into my young and impressionable skull. Don't think for yourself. Let us spoon feed you the truth. Trust us. We're doing you a favor. We are your authority. So I think two things I would say in that letter would be distrust authority. You know, make them earn it. Make them earn whatever title or pedigree, whatever they're waving about. And secondly, stop thinking about doubt as a sin or weakness or an attack and start seeing doubt for what it is. 
Doubt is a process by which we determine if something is crap or not. Doubt is going to be something that you use to protect yourself, your family, your, uh, you know, to protect the good ideas from bad ideas. Embrace doubt. What was that quote? I'm trying to remember who said it. I don't think it was Voltaire, but someone who said, maybe it was Thoreau who said, if you were to be a genuine seeker after truth, it is necessary to doubt as far as possible all things. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Let's go out and let's apply doubt. And if it's genuinely true, if the evidence bears it out, it will survive that doubt. And then I will walk away even more convinced. I think I, I would tell my younger self, you know, don't be afraid to doubt. Go out and kick the tires and see if there's anything there for sure. Amazingly said. And um, yeah, something that someone's asked me to ask you, which I think is a, is a, is a fair question, is um, how does it feel having potentially the best voice in, in podcasting? <laughs> oh, they're very kind. It's funny. I My voice changed when I was in high school and I had, I guess I was a natural communicator. I had, uh, a, my father is, is hard of hearing, nearly deaf, and he did not use sign language. So whenever we were growing up, I had to, I had to sort of hone my communication skills. I had to open my mouth, use good diction, use economy with my words. And, and I guess all of that sort of uh, fed into my future career as a communicator. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry for his disability, but it actually in that way kind of helped me become better at getting my own words out of my head, you know. And uh, when uh, my voice changed, it just changed a lot. And uh, everybody's been very kind about it. And so I've, I've tried to, you know, there are a lot of great voices, a lot, lot better than, than mine. But um, it has served me as a storyteller, as a broadcaster and a communicator. And, and I'm genuinely thankful for that. So as long as people are listening, I'll keep talking. Kind of on that note, Seth, I know there's probably no one listening that hasn't heard of you before, but what would be the sort of way that you'd want people to reach out to you, to get in touch, to follow your work, maybe one of your books? Like how would, how would you encourage people to engage with your story and what you have to say? Yeah, there's two main websites. If you want to go to my personal website, go to sethandrews.com. I've written three, actually four books, if you count the audio book for ghost stories. I'm a big ghost stories guy, and we do an annual podcast of them. And uh, just for fun, you know, because even though I don't believe in spirits, I do love a good ghost story. And uh, But I've got three other books. I wrote my autobiography that really chronicles my journey out, The Sacred Cows, which is more of a romp around the world's most wacky belief systems that came out in 2015. And then my most recent from last year is called Confessions of a Former Fox News Christian. We talk about this news network in the United States, Fox News, that is really... Uh, a branch of the conservative Republican Party. It's a propaganda wing, not a news outlet. How did it happen? Who were the major players? Why do they have such a massively devoted audience? What's that about? And so the book really gets into that in my own history as a Fox News Christian. So you can find all that at SethAndrews.com. And then I host the Thinking Atheist podcast, and the links to podcast and my video work are there at thethinkingatheist.com. So those are the two main hubs.
amazing and i'll make sure that yeah all those things are linked in the description so listener please have a look down in the description you'll see links to all of those um seth it's been so good talking to you like genuinely you've been one of the people that's helped me um keep going through my deconversion when i've wanted to give up and wanted to stop looking and want to just pretend that i believe so it's been great talking to you thank you so much it's an honor my friend thank you well there we go and i hope you enjoyed that episode this is just to say that you can find links to us on social media, Patreon, or the blog directly below. We would absolutely love to hear from you as your comments and suggestions help to drive this podcast forwards. So please reach out. And until next time, this is Sam signing off for When Belief Dies. Mm-hmm.